Brace yourself. You are about to enter the no-spin zone. What? It's the no-spin zone. It's the place like where Bill O'Reilly? Yeah, it's the place where spin comes to die. Does this also come along with, like, 30 sexual harassment lawsuits? <laughs> I mean, yeah, inevitably. Oh, wow. And also a program called Waters World, where we expose the fact that college students are really dumb. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> this is Allow Me to Explain. Welcome back, guys. Uh, we are your hosts. This is Amos Chapman. And I'm Brent Pinheiro. So it's been a while since we recorded our last episode, and I feel like we should probably stop saying that as a point of preamble. Because yeah, I mean, honestly, at this point, you guys are probably used to it, and that's just the reality of life. To those of you who so are eagerly anticipating each episode and coincidentally probably don't exist, uh, we apologize. <laughs> um, <laughs> nah. Uh, but this episode... It's we're... part of the style. <laughs> exactly. Um, this episode we're actually really excited about because we're going to be discussing a topic that is highly relevant, not only to us, but we think probably to most of you. Um, so the question that we're going to be explaining in this episode is why is American higher education so expensive? Yeah, and we're going to kind of go through a historical analysis and talk about some of the solutions possibly to this problem. But we really want to heavily you know, convey to you guys a, a real understanding of how we got to this point in our country with higher education being so expensive and uh, having the student loan crisis. Exactly. Just as a point of preamble, and this is probably not news to any of you, we do seem to have kind of a unique problem in this country where higher education across different um, institutions tends to be very high. This is true for four-year private colleges, for public state schools, and for for-profit colleges. Yeah. It's worth asking and answering the question, what happened? How did we get here? How did we get to a point where the average student has to amass north of $20,000 in student debt just to get a degree that they can then use to get a job to pay that debt back? So we're going to be kind of dissecting the reasons why things are the way they are. Uh, so just to um, establish a few facts at the onset, um, between the years of 1980 and 2005, tuition at nonprofit four-year colleges more than doubled. And at the same time, the total endowment of these schools grew by a factor of seven. So really, starting in the early 80s and continuing to today, we've seen a rapid increase in tuition. And this statistic is just about, you know, nonprofit four-year colleges, yeah. uh, where, where you're seeing like the, the least rapid rate of rising tuition. Um, this is best case. <laughs> exactly. Best case scenario. The worst case is much more frightening. And between 2007 and 2012, it's worth pointing out that tuition at public four-year colleges has gone up by more than 15% in 40 states. That's the low number. More than 25% in 18 states. And more than 50% in seven states. Now, California and Arizona increased their public university tuition by more than 70% between 2007 and 2012. So they're kind of outliers. But still, across the board, in this small period of time, we've seen dramatic increases in the prices that students are asked to pay to attend college. And it's probably worth going into a brief history of how we got here. Yeah, so like where did we really start? Like what was the kind of inception of the idea that the government should be helping uh, people get into college? Uh, that's a good question because it, it wasn't always the case that the government assumed the responsibility of helping students um, get into colleges that they could not afford. You really have to go back to World War II. Congress, in order to solve the problem of a lot of returning soldiers who didn't have college degrees, passed the GI Bill in 1944 to help veterans afford college. And so... Were these grants or were these provided as loans? They were provided as loans, but like okay. very low interest loans. And by 1947, returning veterans actually made up 49% of incoming college students. So it was very necessary to try to give them some additional assistance because obviously they hadn't been working in the private sector, you know, yeah. uh, or had any previous college education. Um, so that's where you see the introduction of this concept of government playing any kind of role in assisting people in affording college education. And then you, there's a big evolution in that role in 1965 when Congress went on to pass the Higher Education Act. And that was like the, the kind of like landmark decision that set government 
uh, in place to help just yeah. the normal average person in the middle class. Yeah, the Higher Education Act was basically designed to help people afford to attend college who could not afford it on their own and okay. didn't come from family or an income strata that could support them. Um, and it actually helped to establish many of the financial aid programs that are still in place today that help to give students low interest loans and extend them federal grant money. Okay. So you, these two things were introduced with the Higher Education Act in 1965. Um, and then after that, let's jump forward a few years, in 1972, Congress created the Basic Educational Opportunity Grant, which basically is like the forerunner to today's Pell Grant. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so by 1978, the program covered um, from families with households of uh, incomes of up to $250,000. So it was a really broad range of people who could apply for these grants. Okay, so that's that's basically, you know, like that's the lower economic class and then sure. you know, the middle class, yeah. basically, for the most part. So, yeah, so again... Like lower and mid-middle class. Yeah, so again, Congress is increasingly assuming a more substantial role in assisting people to pay for college. And then in 1975, um, you start to see an interesting break in terms of the rise in tuition and general price inflation. Um, so prior to the 1970s, college tuition rates only increased about 2 to 3% per year, which is a pretty like standard rate of increase. And it was fairly on par with like the rest of the economy. But since the mid-70s, college prices have actually soared, going up to about like 5 to 6% rises above inflation annually. Oh, um, wow. And you really started to see the, like, the baseline for this trend was like the early 70s, and 1975 was the first year on record that college tuition, on average, increased at more than the rate of inflation. And of course, this problem got worse over time. Um, so fast forward to 1983. That's when Congress passed the Student Loan Commission and Technical Amendments Act, which is a mouthful, but basically it let borrowers consolidate student loans for multiple lenders and then repackage those as investments. Okay, so it's basically like commercial mortgage-backed securities, yeah. not housing or buildings, but like no. student loans. There's an Yeah, of course, there's an analogy here to be made to um, collateralized debt obligations for mortgages, um, but instead of mortgages, student loans were packaged as investments. Um, so that, I think, is a significant landmark because after that, being in the business of issuing loans that are relatively high interest um, became like a very kind of profitable thing and you had the emergence of an entire investment market around that. So then in 1992, um, unsubsidized Stafford loans became a thing. So unsubsidized Stafford loans, I'm, for those of you who aren't familiar, let students borrow money pretty inexpensively, but that money accumulates interest as they're in college. Yeah, because the alternative to that is the Stafford subsidized loan, which exactly. you don't pay interest until after you graduate. Exactly, right. Yeah. Um, so with the unsubsidized uh, Stafford loans, more people were able to apply for more loans, so it increased the volume, um, but also is saddling people with loans that tended to have higher um, interest rates. Um, yeah. By 2012, the average amount borrowed by students in combined subsidized and unsubsidized Stafford loans jumped up to about 8,000. Um, and that number is going to increase pretty drastically over the uh, ensuing, I guess, five years. Yeah. Um, and then in 2004, uh, Sally May, uh, originally a government-backed organization, was privatized. Yeah, because so, they realized there was kind of a market and there was, a, there was money to be made on the backs of these yes. students. <laughs> so Sally May, uh, it, they, they basically issue student loans uh, and they're a completely privately owned institution, although they do receive federal funding. Um, but they went private, I think, to kind of further capitalize on the economic opportunity here. Yeah. Um, and they actually, in that year, 2004, issued about $13.7 billion in student loans. And now they're one of the biggest sources of student loan debt in the country. Um, and then, in 2007, so I guess we're jumping ahead a few years here, George Washington University was the first college to raise tuition over $50,000 a year. Wow. Yeah. How, Which, how, like, is, how much was that in comparison to other like Ivy League schools? Well, I mean, as a point of contrast, Harvard's annual tuition in that same year was like $37,000. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So George Washington University... Um, became the most expensive college in the country in 2007. Um, and then, so all of this happened prior, obviously, to the 2008 um, housing crash and um, ensuing Great Recession. Um, so in 2008, 
things got pretty bad. The global financial crisis led to like massive government budget cuts, and funding for federal direct loans shrunk from seven billion to five hundred nine million. So like basically eight, almost like what, like eight percent, eight percent. Yeah, like the total amount that they were given before. So, like, what a ninety-two percent decrease yeah. in federal direct aid. Yeah, that that's wow. what happened after two thousand eight, which is a really, really drastic cut in federal spending on student loans. Meanwhile, of course, college tuition is continuing to rise rather steadily. Um, and then in two thousand eight, just to give you a little bit of perspective here, so at this point, tuition has increased four hundred thirty-nine percent since nineteen eighty-two while income has gone up only like 147%. So uh, the problem here is that you're seeing this like the steady increase in tuition over time at rates that are far exceeding inflation, while generally speaking, especially since the early 80s, you see income stagnating, right? Particularly for people in the lower and middle classes. Yeah, so basically income growth in the United States is not tracking no. with the growth in uh, college tuition. No, we're reaching a point where the price of colleges is definitely outpacing people's ability to pay for it, unless they happen to be particularly well off. And so that's what's creating such a, an impetus for people to take on a lot of student loan debt, is that that disparity. The, and, and yeah, for a lot of people, it's, it's an absolute necessity. There's exactly. no way that, you know, even with payment plans and stuff like that, that they would be able to afford going to the university. But that gap between stagnating wages and ever-increasing college tuition, it just expands um, even beyond 2008 to today. But 2008 was the first year we really started to see um, the disparity. So overall, college tuition increased 6% between the academic years of 2007 and 2009, which is pretty crazy. That's a lot. Yeah. You have a two-year period in which college, and this is an average, right, so we're taking into account all different kinds of college. Yeah, I'm sure there are outliers on both sides of the spectrum. Absolutely. But a 6% increase over a two-year period is pretty substantial. These increases in tuition start to make sense when you understand that by 2011, that was the first year, that colleges took in more tuition than they actually received in state funding. Wow. Um, so basically what that means is that even state schools aren't like a haven from high tuition anymore because budget cuts left them with no choice except to increase tuition. And also they've just had to compete against other private schools that yeah. have you know, a larger endowment. So exactly. they had to take in more money in order to compete with things like football and you know, other, Ex other extracurricular things. And I'm, I'm sure also educational things as well. Yeah, absolutely. But, but what this means, the significance of this is that tuition is now the primary source of funding for public colleges. It's the moneymaker, if you will. And so that creates an even, even more of an emphasis on the need for continuing to increase tuition over time. And then, fast forward a little bit more, between the year of 2011 and 2012, get this, the average cost of higher education for students enrolling in that year for a private college was $119,400. And for a public school was $33,300. Now this is on average, obviously there are a lot of outliers um, but if these rates stay consistent, we can expect some insane increases in tuition over the next couple of years. Do you have some stats on that? Like how much? Um, so over the next 18 years, students in 2028 can expect to pay $340,800 for a private education wow. and $95,000 for a public one, respectively. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's pretty insane. Exactly. You know, I think it's worth mentioning that there's a little bit of a lag here because the most recent data we have on this is from, like, what, 2015? Yeah, I think that was, like, the that's the date by which most of the major studies on education came out as far so, as universities go. Exactly. So we can only speculate about how much more the rate of tuition has increased over the ensuing, you know, two years. Yeah. Um, but it does seem like things are going to get worse and worse, and the next generation of college applicants are going to be facing pretty astronomically high rates of tuition. Yeah, I mean, it is gradually. Yeah, exactly. Of course, that's absent some kind of direct state or federal level action to kind of solve that problem. Or even a, or or even a private curb. action. Yeah, you know. yeah, exactly. In 2012, uh, the average student loan balance reaches almost $25,000. So that's like $10,000 more than it was in the previous, uh, a decade previous to that, in 2002. Wow. 
Yeah, which is a really drastic increase in the amount of and that's debt. that's on average, right? Yeah, that's on average, right? And of oh. course, there are highs and lows here. And if you look at the people who have amassed a lot of debt, it's crazy to think about that following them in as a burden to the workforce. But yeah, that's basically where we're at. That's about as uh, recent as the data gets. Um, so why do you think that tuition has risen so rapidly? What do you think are the major causes or at least suspects of being causes to this student loan crisis, to this astronomical ballooning of debt and increase in college tuition? I think the first primary cause, and it's not a cause in a prima facie sense because it's an attempt at a solution, but is the uh, investment on a federal level in direct aid for colleges. So you um, think it's because they you know, have subsidized college to such an extent. People have a cushion. Yeah. And colleges can kind of expect the government to at least give a certain amount of well, aid. Yeah, and as we mentioned previously, it's not just government here. You know, yeah, there, that's there are, true. There's a multitude of, of private, private institutions yeah. willing to give you loans. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, but the availability of loans and subsidized aids for college students, I think, has enabled even public universities to continue to increase their tuition without seeing any real decrease in demand or applications. And this, of course, creates a kind of cushion. Um, that means that there's nothing that's mediating increases in tuition over time. Yeah, it's um, increasing the purchasing power of each individual applicant for college. Almost then, astronomically. Yeah, yeah, astronomically. And then that causes these colleges to be able to increase tuition by at least a certain extent, mm -hmm. you know, because the government has backed that amount. Exactly. And, the, and uh, so William Bennett, who, if you're not familiar, he was the Secretary of Education from 1985 to 1988. Um, he's probably most popularly known for his theory named eponymously the Bennett Hypothesis. And it's staggeringly simple, but he argued that increases in federal spending on financial aid have enabled colleges and universities blithely to like raise their tuition, confident that the federal loan subsidies would help to cushion that increase. Now, he said this in 1987, right? Uh, the question is, has this been borne out? Has it been proven to be true over time? Because he was speaking a little bit prophetically here. Um, and I think it has. Uh, there was actually a study done by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York where they concluded, based on their data, that for every extra dollar available to students in subsidized federal aid, colleges raised tuition by an estimated 65 cents on that dollar, on average. Brent, don't you think that we've reached a point where there's almost this vicious cycle whereby as universities and even you know private and for-profit colleges increase their tuition, there's an increased need for subsidized and unsubsidized aid, yeah, and that aid allows colleges to further increase their tuition and back and forth. It goes. Yeah, I definitely think it is a vicious cycle because you know if you look at the profit incentive involved, these banks can continually rely on the fact that there is almost inelastic demand for education in certain areas of the country. Yeah, right, and they can capitalize on that, and you know to a certain extent, you know we can say that like there's no real causal proof. Yeah. For this, you know, correlation between these two variables. Sure. But I, f I find that it, it's very unlikely that uh, we'd ever be able to, first of all, prove a causal relationship, but also that, that this would not be the case. Well, I mean, it, it, it's a fairly obvious kind of observation, but in a vacuum, right, absent kind of massive spending programs on federal aid and absent the, like, wide availability of private loans... Colleges wouldn't have been able to increase tuition to this point. Yeah, they basically set meeting. the playing field for this type of uh, predatory lending. Exactly, yeah. So I think that's like that's like one of the main reasons why things have gotten as bad as they have, right? And we'll get into it a little bit later, um, a discussion of like what future prospects for like student loan debt forgiveness look like, because we're going to have to confront that at some point, yeah, absolutely. given the expected rates of default. But another point I would make is that like, after 2008, there were these really steep declines in like state-level spending on higher education for public colleges. So in 2008, legislatures responded to the like massive decrease in their available tax revenue by slashing higher education funding by 23% per student. Now that's on average across all 50 states, according to the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. So per student that's spending, that's a pretty significant percentage. It's almost yeah. a quarter of all spending. Yeah, in one year, per student spending on a state level decreased by twenty three percent, and it's fallen nearly thirty percent over the past twenty five years. Um, so you saw most of that decrease is accounted for uh, between two thousand and seven and two thousand nine because of states slashing their budgets. 
Um, and what's weird is you haven't really seen, uh, there are a few exceptions to this, California, New York come to mind, but you haven't really seen state level spending like rise to a watermark like that was previous to 2008. Like they haven't risen to pre-2008 levels again. They've stayed pretty low, especially in the state we live in, Texas. That drastic decline in state spending has kind of continued to be the case. And as a result, as we talked about earlier, colleges have been kind of shifting their primary source of revenue away from state's funding to tuition and donations. Which um, then creates that perverse profit incentive in which they want to charge as much as possible and, you know, basically suck every student for every dime that they have. Exactly. Right. That's a very vampiric way of putting it, but, I mean, I don't find much to disagree with in that characterization. Honestly, it's a pretty dark situation. <laughs> <laughs> so going back to that study by the uh, New York Federal Reserve that I mentioned earlier, their researchers found that like the last time Congress increased spending on student loans, for-profit college companies, which, side note, are basically companies that own a lot of colleges that are private and for-profit and they are incorporated and they have stocks that can be publicly traded. Basically, it found that the last time Congress increased spending on student loans, you saw this abnormal return of nearly 10% uh, um, on their investments around the time Congress passed that law which is a sign that investors in for-profit college companies um, anticipate their stocks rising in value whenever Congress decides to spend more money. Yeah, because it's, it's less loans. risk as an investment. Exactly, right. But that, of course, again, creates um, another kind of perverse incentive structure whereby creating the problem of the need for federal aid by increasing tuition also creates more interest in the purchase of these companies' stocks on the public marketplace. Uh, and I, I, I'm not willing to use the word market failure here because I think that's reserved for like more significant things, but it does feel like a defect in the system a little bit, you know? I think it's really a, a, a gap in, in ideology. That's a good way of putting it. I mean, if you, if you look at the actual situation right now with most colleges, it's that their priority is not education. Yeah. I mean, that's just plain and simple. It's run as a business, especially with, you know, explicitly for-profit universities. Yeah. It's run as a business, so they're not exactly concerned. They need to meet a specific par of education, yes. right? But they're not concerned with providing you a more affordable education or providing better quality education more affordably, you know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's not really their... their um, Those are for-profit colleges, which is honestly like a totally separate kind of category. Yeah. Um, at this point, tuition accounts for like such a large share of revenue for public universities. It's something like 47% of all of the revenue that they receive okay. from tuition. That's on average. Um, that it's reached a point where like it, it's not even really fair to call these like to call these public universities anymore, right? Because it's not like they're providing education as a primarily publicly funded good. And that's, yeah. that's no. That's literally quite. That's no longer the case, at least in most states. Yeah. So their their entire revenue system is is based on the fact that most of their income comes from tuition. Exactly. So so this is the point that we are at, and every day it's also worth mentioning, thirty thousand people default on their student loan debt, and it looks like that number is going to increase pretty steadily over the next couple decades. Yeah. And obviously, college tuition has been inflated to a point where most people on their own, absent coming from a family that can kind of stake them out, really can't afford to um, receive the kind of education that they want. Yeah. Um, and obviously this has enabled um, what we kind of know as the student debt crisis. And Brent, I'm going to pass the ball to you on this one and give you a chance to go into it. Well, a study came out in 2015 by the Brookings Institute. It's been one of my favorite think tanks since even high school. Same. They typically take a pretty bipartisan look at most uh, issues. I always pegged you as a Heritage Foundation guy, though, through and through. <laughs> Low blows, my friend. Low blows. They just shouldn't even consider themselves to be a think tank. But anyway, they published this study in which they actually evaluated, like, what is the student loan crisis? And, like, where is it manifesting? Who are the victims? And, and what exactly is happening here. And from what they've determined, they conducted a study uh, with about, I think it's like 48 million different uh, tax samples from different individuals who have taken out loans for the, from the government. And they concluded that actually the vast majority of default, in fact, 70% of the amount of people that are defaulting on their loans, at least back in 2015, who knows what the number is now. Yeah. 70% of them were not these kids going to, you know, four-year universities, mm -hmm. right, getting getting degrees in 
art. I mean, that, that seems to be the you know popular narrative right now. Most people are arguing that you know it's these these liberal arts students who are taking out hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt just to get this art degree, and they won't be able to pay it off. But if we look at the data and like what's being presented right now, actually the vast majority of defaults are people who went to for-profit universities or went to two-year junior colleges or trade schools and ended up you know flunking out or having to leave for whatever reason, right? And not actually finishing their college education. In fact, the, the Brookings Institute study actually categorizes these people as non-traditional borrowers, meaning these aren't like the stereotypical, you know, 18-year-old freshman going into college. These are typically adults who have no parental assistance, living on their own, mm-hmm. and uh, they're just trying to get a college education. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, that, that shows kind of a, a twist uh, in the narrative, I think, and that, and I think that's really important because if we don't actually understand who's really the victim at this point, we can't adequately solve the problem. And I think it's definitely going to expand uh, because the Government Accountability Office in 2016, in conjunction with the uh, Obama administration, they did a few studies, and they project that uh, 25% of the uh, loans that are being given out right now for students will default uh, by the end of their repayment term. Wow. And, and that's, that's, you know, we're talking about hundreds of millions of yeah. dollars, uh, if not trillions of dollars at that point yeah. uh, of, of debt that's just not going to be paid back to both private institutions and the government. So at a certain, at a certain point, we kind of have to ask ourselves, and I think this study does a really good job kind of illuminating uh, the issues right now, is that most college is not affordable to certain income classes. It's just not. They have to take out more debt more of a risk as far as, you know, the risk versus return on their investment of taking out loans and, and going to college. Exactly. Right? They have to take on way more risk than, say, somebody who, whose parents makes, you know, fifty to to $100,000 more than them a year. Right? And, I mean, we have to kind of sit down as a country and, and reconcile, you know, how much do we value education? I, I think something you pointed out earlier, and this was something the Brookings study revealed to me that I didn't previously understand. The public perception, I think, is often that most of the people who are really in danger of defaulting on their student loans are people who attended you know, expensive four-year colleges, you know, took out you know, uh, anywhere from ten dollars to $50,000 in loans to pay for it, right? And then I mean, people typically tout like 100000 150000 even yeah. though I'm pretty sure that's I was, not really I backed was, by I data. I was going for a low-end estimate here, but I've heard personal testimonies of people, friends of mine, Right, who Same. have taken out north of $100,000 in debt just to pay for their college. Yeah. Um, and, of course, I, the assumption is that these people, as they enter the workforce, are saddled with a burden that they actually, it's going to be like a, it's really going to depress their prospects. Yeah, because for you know, getting a loan for education is, is kind of an investment in your future. You're saying, exactly. okay, I'm going to take out this money now with the assumption that this education is going to be valuable enough in order to pay off later in the form of a job or some type of employment. It's definitely high risk, high reward, right? Because depending on what degree program you're pursuing, you're banking on the um, possibility that you're going to get into an industry that will allow you to make enough money to pay back the principal and the interest on all of these loans that you took to go to college in the first place. But remarkably, most of the people who graduate, right, who make it through four-year college and then get a job in the field that they studied in, these are not the people who are in danger of default. It's actually people who are, like you said, non-traditional borrowers, people who are older, who are going back to school, who have never finished previously, and who are attending for-profit colleges. Which, and that's 70% of the default. That's the vast majority. And, and to think about for-profit colleges, is we don't think about them as being a significant part of the problem because for-profit colleges are schools like the University of Phoenix. And there's a lot of other examples, but um, they're mostly fairly obscure schools yeah. um, who provide non-traditional models of education and... It might seem affordable in comparison to state schools, um, but tend typically to, I think, offer a lot less scholarship opportunities, um, so there's just a necessity to take on loans. Um, But the fact, yeah, that people, non-traditional borrowers going to for-profit colleges primarily and not finishing, um, they're the ones who are accounting for the vast majority of uh, the people who have defaulted on their loans and are at risk of default. Um, because they're not actually getting the degree that's going to land them in the job that will allow them to make enough money to pay back their debt. Rather, they've taken on debt to invest in something 
and they've experienced the high risk but not the high reward, and it's putting them in the red, basically. Yeah, and like our previous administration, the Obama administration, kind of recognized this problem because, uh-huh. like I said earlier, they you know they came out with that study talking about you know how you know student loan uh, debt has become even larger than credit card debt in this com- in this country. Yeah. So they're trying to figure out solutions. So they you know they got a law passed where it's basically a program by which different individuals and different income levels can go in and they'll have a income adjusted payment for these federal student loans. Okay. And if they pay into it from I think it's like 20 or 25 years, uh, then the entire debt gets forgiven. Yeah. Right. And uh, what was really interesting about that Brookings study as well is they they talked about that and they said that, you know, 83% of people that qualify for that program aren't using it. Wow. So we have this entire program that could be helping people, you know, deal with this, you know, default. It's but true. because of, you know, the lack of, you know, media attention to that, especially in this day and age, there's so much stuff coming in and going out, you know. Well, I mean, to my knowledge, don't you have to pay into this? I mean, don't you have to, like, pay off your principal and your interest at this adjusted rate for, like, 20 years? Yeah, 20 years? to 25 years, yeah. Okay, all right. Yeah, that's a really long period of time for most people, um, especially people like we were talking about previously, who um, have taken on loans that they didn't to attend school and then like not graduating or dropping out. Um, although it's probably worth mentioning that a lot of the people who are taking loans to attend for-profit colleges are probably not primarily receiving federally subsidized or unsubsidized loans, like because the federal government tends to be a lot more generous in terms of the loans it's willing to give people to attend public colleges and traditional four-year universities, yeah. but less generous in terms of people who want to attend unconventional. Uh, yeah, I, I think that that's definitely true. So they have a specific model in which they kind of endorse for education. So it's a really... But I mean, it's definitely going to create a, a significant problem down the road when all these default, even with yeah. private, you know, private banks. Yeah. I wonder whether... I mean, obviously, it's a really... I think it's a really good idea and very necessary. But at the same time, it would only allow for a restructuring of debt and a, a time window after which you could receive debt forgiveness for people um, who took out a lot of federally subsidized loans, um, which is obviously uh, important, but probably wouldn't solve a big chunk of the problem. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I, it depends on how many people actually qualify. Yeah. I mean, you know. It's true. I, but I highly doubt that enough people qualify that we're going to be able to, uh, you know, alleviate the entire problem. Well, of course. So I, I agree with you to, to, to a certain extent. I mean, I think we should definitely still, you know, try and encourage this, but... In the long term, it's such a systemic issue that that in and of itself will not be able to solve it. It's, there are perverse incentives in the system. Yeah. And you, you're almost left to wonder, I mean, this is something we were talking about previously off air. Um, do you think that like we're naturally going to reach a point where the rates of default are so high that the market's going to have to correct itself and it's just going to be less profitable long term to continue to provide... I don't know. I, I think it depends on the the government's position. And, I guess and, I was talking more how they like slant themselves as far as like how much you know a they continue to get give to like these, yeah. these you know public and private universities, right? How much a they're willing to give and for how long and like all, all those different things would would change kind of that narrative, hmm. right? Of like what would happen. Yeah. But you know, I think it's pretty safe to say that if, you know, if any other uh, economic crisis has been kind of a model for what's going to happen, I would definitely say that at a certain point, you know, we're going to have to reconcile with it, and I just hope that it's not too late. Well, you were alluding, I think, there to the 2008 financial crisis, right? Yeah. Okay, so let's tease that out a little bit. Um, do you think college tuition and the kind of investment market around it is the next bubble? And that, like, high rates of default are going to be the pop? I don't know if I would say it's that? the next bubble, but it definitely is one. Or is a bubble. Maybe it's a better way to I think it. the next one's probably advertising, but that's a whole other uh, uh, conversation. Another topic for another time, indeed. Uh, but I, I do think, definitely think that it is a bubble because, you know, we see just, like, uh, almost inelastic demand for this stuff, the, you know, education in general and, and loans for education just because, because of that cushion. Most private banks and the federal government have been, you know, ensuring at least a little bit of uh, tuition for a lot of different countries. And if we continue to increase that and we also continue to kind of just like maintain the status quo, we're going to run into some serious issues. 
Because also what I think is like a really interesting issue that not a lot of people talk about when in, in regards to student loans is that since the government has gotten so involved yeah. uh, with you know the granting of student loans and even grants to students, uh, whenever you look at private banks, you know, for any other type of loan that they would be giving to someone, they have kind of a rigorous checklist by which they evaluate whether or not you're going to be able to pay it back. Yeah, you, do, you don't see that kind of um, assurance existing around applications for student loans. No, absolutely not. You because just need, I mean, like, if you, need, if you want to get a federal loan, you need, like, a, a cosigner and a few things. But proof of income long-term is not one of the things you need. Yeah, absolutely. And whether or not you're going to be able to actually, you know, sustain paying for even the interest on that. Debt. Yeah. Another problem I think we're going to have to confront as the rates of default continue to increase is, like, what can private banks actually do to repossess? And to collect debt because there's, that's the thing. There's not like clear. Well, that, that's that's the issue with it. There's not clear rules about it because, um, as opposed to other forms of debt, where like there is a there is a collateral between you and the lender, right? Where it's at a certain point, if you have to default, there is something that they can seize to recoup their profits. Like there's nothing like that with student loan debt. I think it just depends on how all of this accelerates. Okay. What do you and mean? And how that? intensely? Like how many people go into default and like how fast? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because if it, there was like a, like a, a really rapid kind of death spiral of defaults. Yeah, which I mean, to a certain extent, you know, I mean, could the, definitely happen based on, you know, contagion theory, the idea that most yeah. banks are kind of interconnected, and when one bank fails, it's caused a lot of banks to fail. I mean, we kind of saw that during the yeah. 2008, you know, Great Recession, yeah. you know, bank shock, you know, we affected banks like all over the world. Because, yeah. you know, we no longer live in like a country-centric economy. Because right. at least right now, you know, according to the Brookings Institute study, most people who are going to not-for-profit, four-year universities, getting degrees, are able to pay back their debt and not go into default. I was reading an article from the Wall Street Journal the other day about how, like, they estimated that 40% of students um, who are who have debt right now are either not paying it, are in default, or are behind on their payments. Right? Which means that only 60% of students, on average, um, are actually consistently keeping up with all of their. Um, um, principal and interest payments. Yeah, and and you know to get down to brass tacks, the fact is is that we're going to need more than forty percent in order to cause the bubble to actually you know I pop. Yeah, but obviously, I mean, hopefully, we never reach that point. But I, I do wonder whether or not this is naturally going to blow up in such a way that this will like no longer be sustainable. And, you know, I don't want to be cynical, but if you look at you know past action. Right, as, as far as you know, how, how fast, what the lag is, the economic lag between the government identifying a problem, being able to come to some type of consensus on how they should solve the problem and implementing it, uh, I, I think the, the likelihood is pretty low that we catch this before it pops unless Fair we enough. act legitimately you know, yeah. now. And looking at the current administration, education really isn't uh, you know, the top of their priority list, especially if you looked at the most recent budget proposal. Well, what it would take, I think, is like a, a real handicapping of private and public um, student loans um, in the sense that like that industry would have to be um, hit pretty hard because the only way to like avoid this problem before it comes to a head is like radical debt restructuring and f debt forgiveness, right? Yeah. Which of course would put a lot of people who were in planning on the profits that are coming from debt payments in, in a bad situation. I mean, at the same time, it seems like it was a pretty bad investment. There, there should be no plea for, you know, almost like a victim mentality for these giant investment corporations. Yeah. And I'm not trying to sound like, you know, an Occupy Wall Street protester, but at the same time, like, you know, you're legitimately making money off of the, like, the, you know, blood, sweat, and tears of somebody just trying to make it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's the question of whose who's marginal dollar is, like, more important here, you know, like, yeah. who can live with and who can live without. And obviously... Um, if we're talking about banks taking a little bit of a hit to the profits that they expect to make long term on like student loan investment, um, that's a far more acceptable outcome than like students across the nation having to face the consequences of living in default and that putting them in a state of financial I mean, and you know, I don't want to come across as like fascist or utilitarian, but yeah, that, that, that is the best way in order to minimize the possible, you know, damage or cost to society. That is Sounds both fascist and utilitarian. <laughs> Actually, it's definitely neither of those things. But well, I mean, think it is kind of utilitarian, but I'm okay with it. But to like zoom out the lens of this discussion a little bit um, and put this in perspective, we are facing the prospect of a market shock at some point, right? 
because we are reaching a point where so many people are in danger of defaulting on their student loan debt and the, the, the problem is feeding itself, the problem of increasing tuition, requiring more spending on um, aid from the federal government and more provision of high interest loans from private organizations. Um, so, because those are all kind of band-aid solutions, yeah, they've exactly. been continuously increasing tuition, and in, in accordance to like how how much you know loan uh, debt that the government is able to shell out. Yeah, I, and I'm not sure how productive it is to point this out, but like this is a uniquely American problem. Like you really do not see this happening in other countries. Like the people facing, like, like in in Canada or in Germany or in the UK, um, it's very unlikely that you're going to talk to a college student who is telling you about like how many tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loans they had to take on to attend a good school. Yeah, um, and I mean, they've, they've definitely had a lot more time to have some type of like cultural enlightenment and understanding that, you know, each individual should and has a, a civil obligation to, you know, provide funding for the education yeah. of all of the inhabitants of that specific area. And like, you know, I think there's there are certain issues, kind of like what we talked about in our last podcast, there's, there's kind of a... Uh, inherently American perspective uh, about certain things, you know, especially in the conjunction with like the American dream and how we perceive making it in the world yeah. that makes that a little bit antithetical. But I think if we look, you know, in the next 20, 25 years, especially when, you know, the millennial generation becomes the vast majority of the economy and the workforce and kind of has leverage in some way, I don't think we're going to see anything until then. I think if I can speculate about the future, at least of federal policy on higher education, we're definitely going to see a shift toward a model that tries to provide more affordable or, in the most dramatic scenario, free public education. And you're already kind of starting to see this on a state level. Uh, New York University or New York is experimenting, or they're trying to pursue a plan to provide free public college to people. And there's a lot of caveats, and it's complicated, and it's not totally free. But at the same time, it's a step in, in the right direction. In that, yeah, in that direction. California, I think, is also developing a similar model. Um, so I think in the short term, the future of like more affordable public college is going to be pioneered on the state level. And I actually think that's like, well, the, the program you mentioned earlier that the Obama administration passed for debt forgiveness, I think that is absolutely a good idea. That should be expanded, regardless of its short-term consequences for the investment market around student loans. But I also think if we basically reassess whether or not we actually think publicly funded higher education is a good that government, either on a state or federal level, should try to provide to its citizens. We could start to shift our priorities, and as our priorities shift, so does the allocation of taxpayer dollars. And if we were willing to invest more money in public education to make sure that people who went to college could do so, regardless of the income quintile that they came from, and it could be able to afford it, that would allow public universities, assuming the quality of education was maintained, to compete in their affordability against private universities and against for-profit colleges. Because right now, that element of competition almost doesn't exist. Because even though public colleges don't have the same profit incentive that private and for-profit colleges do, they definitely still have what I would probably call a prestige incentive, right? In order to like further increase the potential for endowments over time, to stay in a certain upper echelon of colleges, like you know, making sure that your increases in tuition keep pace with other colleges, like that's that's a big part of it, you know. Yeah, and I so mean, if you, if you look there. at a school that the, you know charges fifty thousand dollars, most people assume that it's of higher quality. Yeah, exactly. But I really do think that like we have to figure out a way to make public education, uh, higher education, if not free, then like a lot more affordable. Because I think that would move us closer to a point where there is something competing with the other options, whereas now there doesn't seem I to be I think that, that much. you know, uh, one step, and, I, and I'm not typically, you know, a huge fan of government intervention, but if we do have to take steps and, and they aren't just completely, you know, setting up college as a, you know, a public good. Yeah. Right. We have to find a way in, in order to incentivize colleges to value quality of education and affordability over profit. Mm. Um, and, and you know there are there are many different plans that have been presented in order to do that. But the government does have to provide some type of incentive because the current system we've set up, you know, with the availability of government subsidized loans, yeah. you know, there is no real incentive for either you know public or private universities that are you know, non-profit or profit universities to actually keep tuition low uh, and there's no and since since you know th there's kind of this prestige 
kind of social, you know, benefit mm -hmm. that these colleges are trying to get towards. Yeah. Right. It makes it really difficult in order to curve the incentive structure. And so, you know, on one hand, I think that we should definitely consider trying to step, take steps towards a free education. I'm not sure I would say that American society is ready for that. Maybe not. Um, but, you know, I think it's definitely something that we should be trying to work towards because, you know, it's, indis it's an indisputable economic fact that when your population is better educated, you have a higher GDP and a better quality of life. It's true. There's been a 100% causal relationship proven by multiple studies, you know, throughout decades. Right, And we are going to have to, at some point, come to terms with the fact that we, as a society, have to collectively invest in order to provide you know, an equal chance for every person. I am interested, though, in seeing how this bears out over time when it comes to public, private schools. Because I think that like, the question of how to solve this problem for public colleges has some fairly easy answers. Um, but it does seem like there is little hope that like prestigious private four-year universities are going to have any incentive in the short term to either decrease their tuition or change the structure of their budget so that they spend more money. But I think if money. we provide high-quality public education that is affordable in yeah. comparison to, you know, really prestigious Ivy League schools, yeah. I mean, there's always going to be people that can afford to go there, but at a certain, at a, to a certain extent, there's going to be market pressure for yeah. them to decrease tuition. I think that if you started on a state level and could demonstrate a significant increase in the quality of education, yeah. right, while also decreasing costs, which I think is very doable, you just kind of have to uh, realign your priorities from football to actually educating your students. But that's neither here nor there. That actually is here. No, that, that's, I mean, that's that is literally deal, here in you know? Texas. Yeah, yeah exactly. The, uh, uh, the, the fact that colleges have such an incentive to spend so much money on their athletic programs as opposed to their educational ones. Yeah, and it just, it just creates this weird incentive. And it's another thing that helps to explain these crazy increases in tuition. Yeah, because now they have to afford lighting this giant stadium. Yeah. And don't exactly. get me wrong, like, I'm not trying to come on here and say that, you know, we shouldn't fund football. Like, you know, it's, a, it's an American tradition. It's, it's a very important cultural thing for a lot of people. And I think that it definitely should be, you know, retained. But how much emphasis we put on it, uh, I think, is maybe something that we should kind of evaluate. Now, I'm not going to express my thoughts on this just because I know how controversial they are. Um, speaking as a person who puts little, who sees little value in a lot of investment in like athletic programs at schools, um, I tend to, I would probably be a little more, I would put a more of a point on that and say that it's a waste of money and time, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I completely agree, but let's not sit on this yeah. point. <laughs> but it's interesting because, like, that's that's the kind of price dilemma that um, public colleges face, like where to invest their money. Um, private colleges face a little bit of a different set of choices. Malcolm Gladwell did a uh, there was an episode of his Revisionist History podcast, which I know this is shameless buzz marketing, but I would promote to anyone who hasn't listened to it. It's fantastic. He's amazing, and if you haven't read his books, definitely read all of them. Of course. In general, Malcolm Gladwell is worth seeking out. Um, I actually ran into him in New York one time. Oh, wow, really? And was way too afraid to say hi, so I did not approach him. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> no, but he basically, he has an episode of his revisionist history podcast called Food Fight. And in that episode, he basically compares two colleges in New York, uh, Vassar and Bowdoin College, I believe, who are both like, they're both like elite liberal art private schools, both fairly expensive. Okay. And um, he basically explores the question of like, how do these private schools spend their marginal dollar? And Vassar has been really trying to like spend money on making sure that they can extend scholarships to people who are smart enough and have the scores to get into their school, but just can't afford it. Like are only excluded from their education because of their income or their parents' income. Um, whereas Bowdoin has, Try, spent a lot of their money on like making their campus dope like they have like one of the best campus cafes in the country you know like yeah basically like a mission michelin level cafeteria right? pretty much right yeah um and, and, and the point that gladwell comes to in his interviews with people from both schools is that like Bowdoin has had a lot more success attracting students by spending its marginal dollar and that's coming from tuition and endowments on like making the campus a more luxurious place to be and providing more amenities to its students. And Vassar, an elite private school that has tried to make itself more accessible to people from a lower income quintile, has had a hard time. And they've been facing a lot of like, difficult um, 
choices in terms of how to spend their uh, donors' money. Um, so in the short term, I don't really see a solution for this for like elite private schools, but I think a lot of that will come from more tension and competition from like high quality education coming from a mostly free or affordable public system. So, yeah, well, yeah, we have to undercut the market. Exactly. So to recap this whole conversation, because we touched on a lot of points. Yeah. Um, we have reached a point where college tuition seems to be getting a little out of control. It is increasing far faster than the rate of inflation. And it's projected to keep increasing. And that doesn't seem to be changing, right? Rates of defaults are projected to increase drastically. Um, student loan investment is going to have to increase just to keep pace, right? Um, and so now that we've answered the question of how we got here, I think it is worth continuing to explore, to explore the question of where we go from here. And as we talked about, there's a few different solutions to this problem, but I just think that the next 10 to 20 years are going to be very interesting because we're no longer going to be able to talk about this in an abstract way. Like, I think it's going to become more... A very real problem. Exactly. Like, yeah. Uh, so I think, like right now, I think we're a little far removed from a point where we can talk about a market crash when it comes to... we still got a couple debt. decades. Yeah, with any real urgency, but that's going to change. And before it does, um, I think that we should start more seriously looking at our options. So, Absolutely, and I completely agree. If you guys have any feedback, by the way, if you're interested in this topic, if it personally relates to you, feel free to reach out to us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. I actually think that I'm interested to hear from any of you about your experience with applying for student loans, how much debt you have, where you went to school. I have kind of a unique story, right? I went to school at a, it was not for profit, but a private school in New York City called the King's College for a few years. Found out a couple years in that I really did not like my degree program. Uh, it wasn't really, my values were not aligned with the schools, generally speaking. Um, and so I left, and now I'm trying to re-enter the higher education system. But it's not easy, and I'm facing some fairly steep costs. And it also made me realize, my own experience made me realize that like the problem with taking on a lot of debt to go to school is you don't know whether it's worth it until you've already signed it on the dotted line. And I think that's a huge systemic problem with colleges. They're always kind of uh, marketing something and it never yeah. usually turns out to be you know, as advertised. And I was fortunate enough to get out with like, very minimal debt. Yeah, same. I, you know, I, went to, I went to a, a Catholic liberal arts school for mm -hmm. my first you know, year and a half of college and I decided that the fact that their econ program didn't have any math really didn't yeah. suit me. Uh, so, you know, I went to a different school. I was fortunate enough, you know, that the uh, University of Texas at Dallas has like a pretty high quality econ program and for pretty, you know, affordable prices. Mm -hmm. But, and if you guys want any of the citations for the information that we present on the podcast, don't hesitate to hit us up. Let us know. We'll send you the articles because um, everything we talk about here is backed up by data. Exactly. So if you agree or disagree with our takes, if you have questions or just stories to share about your own experience, um, trying to achieve a degree in this, you know, highly um, priced system that we have, feel free to reach out to us. Um, as always, we're very grateful that you're listening and that you're still with us. Um, we'll keep you guys posted about the next episode. We'll try not to wait another year before we release it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe a year and a day. Sure. Uh, but thank you all for listening. Have a wonderful night. For both of us that allow me to explain, I have been Amos Chapman. And I will always be Brent Pinheiro. And we will be back with you next time.